I want to remind you of a few things about heaven today. Can I do that? This isn't going to be a classic exposition. I'm going to point you to a text of Scripture, and then I'm going to do an application of that Scripture. And part of this comes out of my, um, I call it my geek work. You know, when I had to get my doctorate degree, one of the classes I had at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, they call it TEDS, is I had a class on Jonathan Edwards. And uh, it was life-changing. There was a scholar there, one of the four, you know, four known scholars in all of the world on Jonathan Edwards, and they're trying to recover uh, all the things that he put in print. And so I had a week on Edwards, and so I gleaned some things from his writing on heaven. It's this book, Heaven is a World of Love. And it's incredible. But when I say Jonathan Edwards, you probably don't think about heaven. In fact, when I say Jonathan Edwards, you probably think in your mind, you've probably, I would think, have either heard the sermon, maybe many of you have read it, on sinners in the hands of a what? Of an angry God. And I, and I thought about preaching that, but I thought, ah, it just doesn't... Uh, Not after a week that we've had. And that was a famous sermon upon which he preached to his own congregation and nothing happened. And then he preached it about three months later in a visiting congregation. And if you know that part of church history, revival broke out. People were weeping. They were crying on in the floor, on the floor. They just, they were undone. They didn't know what to do as he began to paint that picture of hell that was so graphic that, again, people were crying out. And and the historians say that when Edwards was preaching that sermon, and and I think I'd have to take it, is that they said that he read his sermon like this. In other words, he wasn't really preaching like, I don't know, like you'd think people would today. He was reading his sermon like this, and as he's reading it, just God brought revival through that sermon and thousands of people came to know Christ of that revival that swept through New England at that time. And people would say that Jonathan Edwards is the greatest American theologian that's ever lived. But as it is, we think of him and we think of sinners in the hands of an angry God. You say, did he write anything else? And I said, oh, yes, he, he wrote a number of things. And he wrote about the doctrine of heaven. So the question that I pose for you that I want to answer this morning is, what will heaven be like? And I'm thinking about Megan Snyder, and I thought it was an incredible night on Friday night for a couple reasons. On the one hand, it was, you just miss her. I mean, I called her, I had my own name for her, I called her the Shepherdess, because she was in FFA even though my kids came up to me on Friday night and they said, Dad, you said F-A-A. I said, it's all the same, F-A, okay. And she'd wear her jacket to our youth group. And so from that point, I said, what do you do, Megan? And she says, I take care of sheep. I said, bam, from now on, you're the shepherdess. And so I called her the shepherdess. I had never met someone in my life who took care of sheep. And uh, she did, and she just was a joy. But I thought about her. I thought, what will heaven be like? And to you high school students, is heaven going to be boring? Is it going to be just a bunch of harps playing everywhere? What's your picture and your thought of heaven? John Eldridge, 
in his book, Journey of Desire, said nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. He said, we have settled on the image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And, and that could be okay. I, I, you know, it's not wrong to sing hymns. But then Eldred said, and our heart sinks forever and ever. That's it? That's the good news? And when we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual... He said, we lose heart and turn once more to the present to find what life we can, end of quotes. Is that what it is? Just ever and ever ongoing. What do you think about the doctrine of heaven, Kingsburg High School? I read this book, maybe you did too, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And Mark Twain portrays a similar view of heaven. Miss Watson takes a dim view of Huck's fun-loving spirit. And according to Huck, quote, I don't know if he said it like this, but I probably read it like this. She went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was to go around all day with a harp and sing forever and ever. So Huck says, I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. End of quote. To which I've had a number of people tell me in face-to-face conversations of evangelism that if their friends are are in hell, they would rather be in what? Hell. I don't think so. I've had a number of people tell me that, and there it is right there in the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Miss Watson had nothing to say about heaven that appealed to Huck, and possibly nothing, if we're honest, appeals to us. In fact, Randy Alcorn, commenting on that, said what would have attracted him speaking of Huck, was a place where he could do meaningful and pleasurable things with enjoyable people. In fact, that's a more accurate description, Alcorn said, of what heaven will actually be like. If Miss Watson had told Huck that the Bible says about living in a resurrected body and being with people we love on a resurrected earth with gardens and rivers and mountains and untold adventures, that word, Alcorn said, would have gotten his attention. Imagine that you're put and you're part of a NASA team preparing for a five-year mission to Mars. And after an extensive time of training, the launch date finally arrives. And as the rocket lifts off, one of your fellow astronauts says to you, what do you know about Mars? Imagine shrugging your shoulders and saying, nothing We never talked about it. I guess we'll find out when we get there. You just couldn't imagine that. It's unthinkable, isn't it? It's inconceivable that your training would not have included an intensive study of preparation on your ultimate destination, right? How about us going to heaven? You thinking about that? 
I mean, certainly at a time like this, Megan is in the presence of God. But I wonder, do we talk about heaven? Moms, do you talk to your kids about heaven? Dads, do you talk to your kids about heaven? Kingsburg High, do you think about it? Do you contemplate it? Do you think, hey, one day I'm going there and what should I do in order to prepare for going there? You know, it's fascinating that William Shedd, you you don't know who William Shedd is maybe. William Shedd is a brilliant theologian, okay? He's a brilliant reformed theologian who believes in the sovereignty of God at salvation and so forth. He wrote three volumes on dogmatic theology, and it contains 87 pages on eternal punishment, but only two on heaven. It's interesting, isn't it? 87 on hell and two on heaven. And he's a good guy. Then you go to Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's one of my heroes, who he has two volumes of biography in his life written by Ian Murray, who was at the Shepherds Conference just last week. And I've read Martin Lloyd-Jones volumes, both volumes, twice. It was so good. Medical doctor turned pastor. But he wrote a 900-page theology called Great Doctrines of the Bible. And Lloyd-Jones, as esteemed as he is, devotes less than two pages to the eternal state, to heaven. And then you get to another one of my favorite guys. <laughs> His name is Burkoff, and he wrote a classic work, Systematic Theology, 38 pages to creation, 40 pages to baptism and communion, yet only two pages on hell and one page on the eternal state. These guys are in our camp. So what will heaven be like? But I'm a little bit more particular this morning. What will your relationships be like in heaven? And maybe you haven't thought about it, but let me ask you, if sin is banished, what kind of relationships will you share in? There will be a new earth resurrected, a new life resurrected, a new body, if you will, of Christ that is already resurrected and so forth. What will that be like? And what I want to do just briefly this morning is take you to a text of Scripture, one, then take you to a statement of the doctrine of heaven, and then thirdly, to the application of the doctrine of heaven. So a text, a statement, and an application, okay? And much of this comes and was developed from Edwards on heaven as a world of love. But let me take you to the text of Scripture. We always are bound by the Scripture. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And there's much more to say as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 13, being in the presence of God, worshiping around the throne of God, and so forth. But I don't think we think of some of the nuances of heaven. And if you want a good read, you could read Randy Alcorn on the doctrine of heaven. John MacArthur has a book on the doctrine of heaven. They're fabulous. But I want to give you a text of Scripture, and it's 1 Corinthians 13. And you know it. It's called the love chapter, right? He says, love, and I'm in 13.4. Um, well, you can back up. Go to 13.1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
In other words, you could speak with tongues of men and, and tongues of angels. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. If I have prophetic powers, verse 2, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, he says, I am nothing. If I, think about this one in our own day. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And this is sandwiched, as you know, in between the excursion of spiritual gifts in 12 and 14. And matched in that is this doctrine of love and the way of love. And then he goes on in that classic statement. I like to do this at weddings. He says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And here's the text. Love never, what? Ends. He goes on to say, as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues... They will cease. Well, that's another dialogue. He says, as for knowledge, it will, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have fully known. He's talking about heaven there, isn't he? So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. You say, why is it the greatest of these is love? I think the best I can take about it is our faith, verse 13, will become sight, and it was that for Megan. Hope will no longer be hope because hope will be realized, if that makes sense. You're not going to hope when you're in the presence of Christ. In fact, all of our salvation is moving us to glory. And when you're in his presence, but it says there that the greatest of these is love. And then if you look back at verse 8, it says love never ends. Or literally, love never fails. Love permeates. It outlasts all of our failures. Now, just for a moment, if you look down in verse 10, but when the perfect comes the partial will be done away with. There's some question as to who or to what is the perfect. And I've heard a number of reasons given to what the perfect is. is. Some believe that the perfect is Christ at his second coming is the perfect. So that when it says there, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In other words, when Christ comes at the second coming, this partial, the other description of love is going to pass away, or these other things, the prophecies and so forth is going to pass away. Tongues, it's at a second coming. And ah, it's, uh, it's okay, but the word there for the perfect comes, and the language is what we call neuter, okay? It's not masculine. It's not, it's not female, if you will. It's neuter, so I don't think it's referring to a person, and I don't think it's necessarily referring to the second coming of Christ. Other people say that when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with, is that's the mature church. 
He, in other words, when, when the church gets mature, all these other parcel things of tongues and prophecy is going to go away. And there's an aspect where that's true, but I don't think that's the best opportunity. Some people call, say, when the perfect comes, it's the rapture of the church. That when Christ raptures the church, this partial will be done away with. But I think the best way to take when the perfect comes, Grace Church, is to look at it as the eternal state. When we go to glory, when we go on into glory, when we see him linking that to where it says, when we see in a mirror dimly, verse 12, then face to face, it seems like he's pushing that to glory, to the eternal states. And this is in contrast to what the church will be, not only on earth, but what it becomes in heaven. Listen to Edward's description on heaven as a world of love. He said, life in heaven shall be without the least sinful failure or error. He said, every action, and he's talking about the perfect state, will be perfect in all of its circumstances. Every part of their behavior shall be holy and divine in matter, he says, in matter and form and in. In other words, there's no pollution there. Edward said, there's no deformity of any kind in any person or anything in heaven. Everyone in heaven is perfectly pure. That world is perfectly bright. There will be no darkness in it. Perfectly clear, without spot. There shall be none appearing in any defects, either natural or moral. Edward said, there is nothing seen there which is sinful, nothing weak, and nothing foolish. And then what Edwards did is he went on to describe and give 10 descriptions of that love in heaven. And he gives us an insight of what heaven will be like in our relationships to God and in our relationships here for our time to one another. And that's going to be my focus, okay? And I, and I just thought as we, I pulled in on Friday night to Rick and Linda's, I saw a sign, I think it was the track team or the baseball team, and, and I, I praise the Lord for it. It said, celebrating Megan, okay? Now, that's what it is. When you go to a Christian funeral, you're celebrating her life lived, well lived, well done, my good and faithful servant. But you're celebrating where she is, right? Amen? She's in the glory of heaven. So I was reminded of that. So listen, these 10 expressions, the first three expressions are sinful characteristics of our earthly relationships that will be removed in heaven, okay? Then I'm going to cite seven characteristics that are positive in nature and express what our relationships will be characterized by in heaven. In heaven, according to Edwards, is a world of love. So I take you from the text of Scripture, secondly, to the doctrine of heaven. I'm just going to list these pretty fast. If you take notes or you could email me and I'll send them all to you. But number one, and I, this was Edwards' word, and I'll unpack it and put, put some scope to it. But he said, you will, in heaven, you will never be dissed. You will never be dissed. He said, love there always meets with answerable returns of love. I like that. In other words, I take Edwards to mean that God's love for us and our love for one another will always return in due proportion. 
I mean, have you ever been hurt by someone? Have you ever been ignored by someone? Have you ever been shut out by someone? Has someone ever given you the cold shoulder? Listen, in heaven, and I'm trying to build our theology here, we will never be ignored or in any sense grieved by another because we will be so full of God's love for us that our love for the saints will never be diminished and it will never be extinguished. In other words, you'll never be dissed. Because, because God loves us perfectly, in our future glory, we will be able to love one another with a perfect love, even as we ourselves are loved by God. And so your love to God and your love to others will always be returned to you in like manner. Number one, you will never be dissed, okay? Secondly, if you can comprehend this, you will never be jealous, okay? That, that's the negative. You'll never be jealous. The joy of heavenly love shall never be dampered. It shall never be interrupted by jealousy. I mean, humanly speaking, in our flesh, this is inconceivable. However, one of the glories in heaven is a world of perfect love whereby there remains no jealousy within the soul of the redeemed. And what remains is perfect trust between one another. In heaven, Grace Church of the Valley, there will be and there will remain no suspicion, no rivalry, no selfishness to stain your friendships. And Paul says right here in 1 Corinthians 13, love is not what? Jealous. Here, that's a fight, okay? But in heaven, you will never be jealous over another's possessions. You will never be jealous over another's looks. You will never be jealous over another's brains. You will never be jealous over brawn, if you will. You won't be jealous over someone's personality. You won't be jealous. We're laughing over their clothes or their toys or their instruments or their popularity. When you get to heaven, you will not only never be dissed, but you will never experience jealousy. I mean, listen, beloved, this is just staggering. And this is just but one of the expressions of love. In fact, Edwards put it this way in his writing, they shall have no fear that their professions and testimonies of love are hypocritical. He said, they shall be perfectly satisfied of the sincerity and strength of each other's love as much as there was a window in all their breast that they could see each other's hearts. Everyone will be perfectly sincere. All their expressions of love shall come from the bottom of their hearts and the saints shall know that God loves them and they shall not doubt of the greatness of his love. I love that. You will never doubt the greatness of his love. When you're in his presence, you will never doubt his love. And I believe that one experience will be so transforming that you will no longer think about yourself. As Edward's saying, you'll love other people. In fact, Edward's saying, they shall have no doubt of the love for all their fellow heavenly inhabitants, and they shall not be jealous of the constancy of each other's love. So listen, in heaven, you'll never be dissed, according to 1 Corinthians 13 and an application of it. You will never be jealous. Thirdly, I would say it this way. 
This is unbelievable. Your relationships will never know tension. Tension. I mean, to be honest with you, there's probably tension in a little bit of everything we do. How much, oh, how much each of us is soiled with our own sinfulness, our own imperfections. And those imperfections and that sinfulness, beloved, can quench every single relationship that we're involved in. I mean, even the most godly of believers, souls become clogged with sin so as to make our expressions of love to God and others a shallow substitute of God's original design. But listen, in our glorious future in heaven, love will never fail. We will not be hindered to express our love to God and our love to others. You'll have no problem. You won't wonder if they're going to take it wrong. And you're, it's just, there's going to be no tension. Can you imagine that? All of our life at times with people in certain settings, in certain situations is tension. Listen, every obstacle that hinders our relationship to God and our relationship to one another will be removed. Listen, the chains of imperfection will be broken, which will allow at that point us to worship God and to minister to each other in unbroken fellowship without tension for all eternity. Can you imagine that? Listen, you don't want to call Megan back, as Nico appropriately said. She's in the presence of God where she'll never be dissed, right? She'll never be jealous. She'll never know any tension. And that's, the, that's what is held out for us. Fourthly, okay? Fourthly, I'm just moving quick here. In heaven, you will possess wisdom. You will possess, number four, wisdom. In heaven, love will be always expressed, this is what I'm trying to say, in perfect wisdom. Every expression of love in heaven will not only be purified from all defilement of sin, but all and every expression of love toward God's and others will be marked by wisdom so as to never make us offensive to another person. Wow. Infinite beings, our best intentions can be misunderstood. Husbands, are you ever misunderstood? Okay. But in heaven, we will possess wisdom. So to speak, if you will, and so to act with such clarity that all our expressions of love to God and others will be infinitely wise. That's heaven. You getting ready for that? In other words, our words and our actions will be suited perfectly in every conversation and we will never give wrong advice or have to take back our advice and all of our conversations will promote and encourage one another to perfect understanding and wisdom. There you have it. In heaven, you will possess wisdom. So that's why when he says love never fails, it's always going to rain. Fifth, how about this? There is perfect peace and joy. You know that, but there is perfect peace and joy. The fellowship is perfect. You say, what does that mean, Scott? Well, that means no relationship will be hindered by a lack of information, by a lack of knowledge, or any such thing. Heaven with God's love at the center will be the ultimate expression and enjoyment of God and each other's love. You know, one of the things, and I don't mean this in a, a wrong way, but I, I just think being on there at Friday, I'm trying to think how I can capture this. 
with people who love Christ is a taste of heaven with Megan. To know the impact that that young girl had made on so many people and to think what the glory of heaven will be like. It will be perfect joy and perfect peace. Listen, beloved, Murphy's law in heaven will be reversed. Whatever can go wrong will never go wrong, okay? Bitterness will be banished. Hatred will be snuffed out. Malice will be extinguished. And perfect love will prevail in every relationship. Let me practically say it this way. There will be no wars in heaven. There will be no gangs in heaven. There will be no terrorism in heaven. There will be no jails in heaven. There will be no law courts in heaven. There will be no lawyers in heaven. Sorry, Kirk. Um, Okay, there's going to be no judges in heaven. There's going to be no crime in heaven. There's going to be no violence in heaven. It will be perfect joy and peace, and you will enjoy that with people in a way that you've never had. And of course, the greatest relationship is joy of God and joy of Christ. But listen, if we don't understand that part of this expression of our local church is a little bit of a taste of heaven, then we'll never prepare for it because I think heaven's going to be about God. It's going to be about Christ. It's going to be about Him. And then those relationships we will enjoy will be perfect peace and joy. Sixth, Six, there will be perfect unity. (laughs) Perfect unity. Because God will be over all. All our relationships to him and to one another will constitute the place where perfect unity dwells because we are of God's household, brothers and sisters of his family. Strife and quarreling will be buried into the deepest sea because of our nearness to God and because of his nearness to God. Us, in heaven, you will never know anger. You will never know arguing. You will never know fighting. You will never know loud voices. You will never experience an angry look. You will never experience a manipulating comment. You will never be given the silent treatment or the like. There will be perfect unity, okay? Love never fails, It's to be lived out now, but in heaven, it will never fail. And the seven, okay, moving through these quick, there'll be perfect sharing. There will be perfect sharing. Because we are God's possession, purchased and bought with a price, heirs of the covenant of promise, all that God is is ours, and all that we are, we share with one another in a perfect place of bliss. Remember in Acts 2, there was a description of the unified church sharing all their resources whomever had a need. Can you imagine, beloved, what heaven will be like? Your clothes, your shoes, your toys, your musical instruments, your airsoft gear? Probably. Why would you ever conceive of heaven not being the most glorious thing you could ever experience? I think there's going to be so much relationship that we have with God vertically, that we have with one another. You will be thrilled from all eternity, and there will be perfect sharing in every place. You will not selfishly possess anything. We will be so full of God's love that his love will permeate all of our possessions and, and for one another's blessing. Can't you wait for that day? Eighth, maybe in light of this, eighth, there will be prosperity. There will be prosperity. We will enjoy each other's love in perfect and undisturbed prosperity. 
Obviously, we're fallen creatures on earth, and as such, our relationship to one another bears weaknesses as well as shares the loss and difficulties of another's hardships. But we'll share one another's prosperity. Did you know there will be no sorrow of financial pressure in the glorious city? You will never owe anybody anything. You will pay no bills. You will possess no debt. All of our needs are perfectly met, and we shall never, ever, 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 ever go without. We will be perfectly satisfied with the person of God the person of Christ, and then his provision for us. And this is beyond our finite understanding because we spend a lot of our life providing. We spend a lot of our life working, but there we'll have it all. Won't it be great? Think of this, number nine. All of it will be to our advantage. All of it. You say all of what? All of everything. All things in the world will conspire to promote love and give advantage for mutual enjoyment. And I think this is one of the government's goals, but we're laughing when we think of what the government do. Imagine what King Jesus can do. Imagine the unity and the culture that he creates, that everything will be for our advantage. In other words, heaven holds no loss. It holds no disappointments, no hurts, no frustration, All things in this glorious new world are gained for the mutual enjoyment of one another. God will, you know the scripture, Revelation 21, wipe away every tear and every sorrow and exchange for these. He will give us joy and thankfulness as we worship him for all eternity. Unbelievable. Tenth, finally, (laughs) and you know this, we are eternal. We, we never die. Jesus said that. I quoted that. Nico quoted that in John 11, that the one who believes in him shall live even if he dies. But you know, and I know that we are eternal and we will know that forever we will, be con- we will continue in perfect enjoyment, both of God and of each other's love. Forever in God's presence forever in God's love and forever dwelling in perfect love with each other. Listen, I'll tell you what heaven will be like. You will never be dissed. You will never be jealous or sinful, but rather you will possess perfect wisdom, absolute peace and joy, true unity, complete sharing, total prosperity, every advantage, and this will go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And then you tell me, the one who says that he's grabbing for this life for all that he can get in the Gospels. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his what? Soul. Really? You're going to live for the here and now and forfeit your soul? When you think of a child of God, Megan Snyder in the very presence of God. And here's my application, and I'm all done, okay? Edwards wrote, you know, he's famous for those resolutions, okay? And he wrote these resolutions in 1722 when he was 19, okay? 
And here's what Resolution 22 states. Here's Edwards. I want somebody to start a club on this at Kingsburg. It said, resolved, Edwards quotes, to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can, that with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence, I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of, end of quote, Resolution 22. As much happiness in the other world. Are you preparing for that other world? I'll tell you, you know, when you behold just a sweet girl like Megan Snyder, and I had the opportunity to go right with her at her hospital bed, and the machines had her alive, but she was gone, you understand. I thought, she's not here. She's not here. Her soul has departed into the presence of Christ. And she walked with the Lord. She's going to be there forever and ever. So two things you can do in my application. Thirdly, okay, the text, then the doctrine of the statement, and then thirdly, the two things. Number one, you know I'm going to say this. Set your mind on the things above. Colossians chapter 3, right? There's your final destination. There's your great inheritance, okay? Give your hearts to it. Focus your attention on the things above. Spend our time seeking after the things above. Reason with me for a second. Does not the absence of pride and jealousy and strife and injustice and falsehood and hypocrisy and deceit cause not our hearts to seek the treasure in heaven above all else? Listen, cut out of your life anything that doesn't help you set your mind on the things above. Last week uh, on Sunday with our wonderful youth group who I love and just respect so much, I, we read some of Megan's journals and they had some of her journal articles in the bulletin or the program on Friday night. And I'll just tell you, this woman walk with God, making entries when she's 14. God, give me an undivided heart. Then another entry out of John 15. And, and I'll tell you this, one of the reasons she was so outward focused is because she experienced the love of God in her own heart. And as she experienced the love of God in her own heart, then she then had the ability to love the people around her. And one of the reasons why this is so hard for so many is that girl walked in the spirit. And she was walking in the spirit as a young teenager. How are you doing, adult? I mean, I read a couple of those things. I was convicted. And then she'd usually sign all of her journal entries with your daughter, Megan. And I just thought her mind was on the things above. And so as she put her mind and heart into the scripture, God transformed her from the inside out. And she was an incredible, incredible uh, witness to others. Don't be robbed of the cheap substitutes of the world in light of the greatest reality in all of the world. So what are you doing, men, to lay up, you know, eternal investments for tomorrow? How do you use your money? Is that appropriate that I say that? You give in to the Lord's work and lots of visitors today, but I don't care, okay? You give in to the Lord's work, you think somebody else is going to do it. You know, where your pocketbook is, your heart is. And I'm not telling you that because I want you to give. I'm telling you that because I want you to be making an eternal investment in the things to come that when you get to heaven, you're going to be filling purses that don't fall through, as it says in Luke 16.
So listen, at some point, at some way, you've got to take the greatest things you are and your talents and your, and your abilities and use them for the Lord, whether that be gifts or whether that be finances. But listen, lay up those treasures for heaven. Set your mind on the things above. Evangelize together with people. It'd be really cool. I'm just praying for Kingsburg High. Particularly, I'm praying that some guys would raise up on that campus and be strong leaders. That's how I'm praying, that people would speak openly and speak unashamed and be bold. And that's what, that you pray with me for that, for Kingsburg High. And men, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're going to take that challenge. And I love you and I love what God's doing, but I'm praying that God would give us bold men, just real men who don't care what people think, who don't care how they come off, who don't care what they look like, who don't care if they're dating a girl or not dating a girl, but who are consumed with the things of Christ. That's what I'm praying for. I'm praying for guys that have that heart where, as she said, give me an undivided heart. And, and I see God doing a wonderful, wonderful work upon which I'm praising God for. So listen, number one, set your mind on the things above. Secondly and finally, okay, and I'm going to put it in my own words in this sense. Kiss your understanding of a perfect earth goodbye. Right? Kiss it goodbye. And it doesn't mean we're not joyful, Right? But most relationships have strains and sorrows. But realize this. We are not in heaven. Okay? And I want you to be careful of an affection only tied to this world. There's people who can't even get in the Lord's house for months. And I call them and leadership calls them. And where are they? Listen, you know some of those people. Go after them. Okay? Because if your hope is bound up here... That's a scary, scary thing. It will disappoint you every time, but heaven will astound you. Heaven will amaze you every time, right? Those are all the great things that, that heaven is. And I'm thinking of when the, in heaven, in Revelation 21, there's no more tear, there's no more sorrow. The old, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. But listen, kid yourself not. You're not going to be around a harp, and hymns, although I think we'll sing with all of our hearts. You're going to be in the glory of his presence. Hey, parents, would you help your kids with that? Would you, would you help them get this? Would you help them as a, a grammar school kid love the things of Christ? Would you help them just love the things of the Lord? Would you just help them see heaven? Would you help them understand heaven? Will you lead them by their hand to heaven? Will you put them in a place where they can hear truth to to get to heaven? And that's why I'm starting John next week. In fact, I was praying this week, Lord, I want some of the children there. I'm going to let you parents make the distinguishing mark there. But listen, all I want to tell you is that John's whole purpose is I write these things to you in order that you may believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that believing you may have life in his name. I'm praying that God does a revival in our midst as we look at the at this unique, wonderful, wonderful gospel. You say, Scott, I don't know the gospels very well. Well, you've got to come back next week. We'll start it. So I've read some of the gospels, but have you ever studied John? And, and I think it's very, you know, I'm going there because I think we need Christology in, in our church, and then we'll move out to greater proportions of the epistles. I want to get to Ephesians and Romans, but I've got to go to John because I've already done right James, 
I've done First John, I've done Jonah, and then I needed to stay with another J. That's not true. Um, but listen, hey, don't be like that. I've told the story before. Don't be like that monkey, though, in Africa. You know that one? I, I've shared this before. And just, you can tell your kids they didn't talk it when you go out today. You know how the, the men catch the monkeys in Africa? And I've shared this with it. It just comes to my mind just free, okay, today. What they do is they climb up into the trees. You know, the monkeys are in the trees. You've seen them at the zoos and all that. Well, in Africa, which I'll be going in about four weeks to Africa, I'm going to Malawi. Pray for me to teach a group of pastors on the subject of preaching. But you go, I've been to some of those safaris, and it's amazing. But how the men do this is they need the monkey, then they sell the parts, and they sell the stuff of the monkeys. And a very interesting way to catch them. They take a little gourd or a vase, okay? Just picture a flower vase, if you will, like that. They take a vase and they climb into the trees, okay? Um, In the daytime, the monkeys are out. They're gone. They're somewhere, okay? They climb into that tree. They take that gourd. They take a rope with them and they take the rope and they wrap that vase, that gourd, around the tree branch. And then inside of that gourd or that vase, they place some, some nuts in there, okay? And then they come back down, takes them just hardly anything to go do this, hardly any time. They come back down. Then in the night, of course, that's where the monkeys live. The monkeys smell the scent of the prize in that vase, in that gourd. And the monkeys come up to the vase and to the gourd, and they reach their hand into the gourd, okay? You can picture it. They just put it in, okay? And they grab the prize in there, the peanuts, okay? They grab, they grab that prize in there, and they got a fist now. But the men in Africa have made that gourd and that vase just sufficiently large enough that you can put your hand in without a fist. But once you fist, you can't pull your hand out, okay? And so right there, that monkey has a decision. He either either lets go of the prize and saves his life or he holds on with a tightly clenched fist and just keeps pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. And, and, And the story is he didn't have enough sense, to let go of what's in his hand. And so the men climb up in the tree in the morning with their billy club and just back them, bag them right on the head, bag them, put them in their bags, and they catch monkeys because that monkey doesn't have enough sense to let go of what's in his hand. And I think that's the American dream for young people. Just grabbing after stuff all the while. You're holding on for dear life, not knowing that he who wishes to save his life is going to what? lose it. But he who loses his life is going to save it in the life to come. So listen, Grace Church, I love you. Set your mind on heaven.